0: Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. And I'm Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored. In today's episode, Natalie Belanger of the Connecticut Historical Society explores the story behind a landmark civil rights case.
1: In November 1961, a Planned Parenthood administrator and a doctor from Yale opened a birth control clinic in New Haven. What they were doing was illegal, and they wanted to be arrested for it, so that they would have a reason to appeal their case to the highest court in the land. It worked. The case, which came to be known as Griswold v. Connecticut, not only struck down Connecticut's antiquated anti-contraception law, but would influence Supreme Court decisions on a slew of other cases related to sexuality, reproduction, and marriage. To find out about Griswold's origin and influence, I spoke with historian Barbara Sisherman, the William R. Keenan Jr. Professor Emerita at Trinity College. Barbara told me the story of Griswold, including its effect on a lesser-known case called Abelli v. Markle. Also known as Women v. Connecticut, this lawsuit successfully challenged Connecticut's anti-abortion law a decade after Griswold. Hello, Barbara. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Natalie. Can you provide a little background about the legal status of contraception in the United States before the Griswold case?
0: Yes, I can. I think first, uh, it's important to understand that the law against distributing or using contraception was one of many types of state laws regulating sex and marriage. There were laws about fornication, adultery, homosexuality interracial marriage, and so forth. The Comstock Law of 1873 was an anti-obscenity law that banned the circulation of obscene literature for immoral use, as they said, through the U.S. Mail, and it included a ban on articles, instruments, drugs, as well as literature, anything that might prevent contraception or abortion. Law was so popular that it was adopted by vote by voice vote in the Congress with only two people opposing it. So the context, what are the contexts for this law? First, there was popular culture which uh, in which erotic literature of all sorts circulated freely without regulation. This was ubiquitous, had had information about contraception, abortion. Abortion was fairly common, and uh, people could advertise wears that said do you need to get back your period and take this pill or drug and so forth so this was all very open so the the second factor here i would say there was a widespread interest at this time in e- evangelical christianity countering such measures and basically upholding the view which became the standard view about sexuality that sex and reproduction should not be separated that any of sex should have the possibility of offspring. And so this was a uh, widespread view too, and even feminists who believed in controlling reproduction did not believe in artificial contraception. And I'd say a third factor that's not often noted is that there was a decline of the birth rates uh, uh, in the 19th century striking. Uh, the birth rate of white women cut, was cut in half from about seven children on average to 3.5. And uh, there was a lot of fear that this was, I think, a general belief that this was intentional. So abortion was not a crime. Before about 1840, by 1900, every state but Kentucky had an anti-abortion statute. So state laws followed the Comstock Act, known as Little Comstock Acts. And the Connecticut law was considered as one person called it by a booby prize. It was the most stringent because it prohibited the use of contraceptions, which was the only one that did that. The others concerned distribution and so forth. This was an 1879 statute, And anyone who violated this was punishable by jail, not less than 60 days or more than a year, or fine, not less than $50 or both. And later, a provision was added that was to apply to, quote, any person who assists, abets, counsels, hires, or commands another to commit any offense.
1: Was there any pushback against this?
0: So these laws were challenged nationally uh, by radicals and liberals, people who believed in freedom of speech and civil liberties, but particularly by Margaret Sanger, who made the getting birth control available for her life cause, really. So she had she published a newsletter for which her husband was jailed, actually. But then in 1916, she set up a birth control clinic in Brownsville, Brooklyn, the first of its kind. And this was an immigrant Jewish neighborhood. And one of her assistants spoke Yiddish. This was quickly closed down. Uh, There was a trial. Uh, They were pronounced guilty and they were jailed. But uh, a judge who was handling the case did say that the New York law should not prevent physicians from providing medical care uh, as needed. So there was the beginning of the notion of a medical exception. Sanger then shortly thereafter in 1921 found the American Birth Control League, which later morphed into Planned Parenthood and set up clinics that promoted clinics through nationally. And the clinic movement, I can't really estimate someone quoted it as as high as 650 clinics by 1940. So Sanger, who was a radical in her early days, moved away from that point of view about birth control and more towards the medical establishment, which was initially hostile uh, to birth control as it was to abortion. And she had some successes here in 1936. There was a Supreme Court case called U.S. versus One Package where doctors were allowed by this decision to send medical materials through the mail. So that was a direct response to the Comstock Act and and made it moot. And then the following year, 1937, the American Medical Association endorsed contraception
1: So while all this is going on nationally, what was happening in Connecticut to make contraception more available to women?
0: The Connecticut case then was different, as I suggested, from other cases because uh, other states because uh, of the prohibition of use. And in 1923, prominent Connecticut women, uh, many of whom had been leading uh, suffragists, uh, formed the Connecticut League for Birth Control their goal was to get rid of the Connecticut law. And they spent 40 years, not always the same people, but it was a 40-year effort of getting rid of this Connecticut law, and um, they failed. They made 22 attempts to repeal the law, taking it through the legislature, only to be knocked down. And the reason was uh, Catholic opposition to this. The Population was 40% Catholic and a strong feelings in the church. And it's surprising to most people that the opponents of birth control of this period were Democrats, uh, who were then representing largely immigrant and urban communities, and that it was the Republicans who represented, well, upper class, but also rural and small, small town uh, groups. But the Connecticut Birth Control League, and I'll call it Planned Parenthood of Connecticut, which it became about 1940 or so, set up clinics anyway. They decided, uh, uh, you know, everybody else is doing it and we want to do this uh, for poorer citizens. I should say that birth control was generally available for upper class people or people who could afford to pay, private doctors, people could even buy it in drugstores. But if you couldn't pay for it, you were out of luck. The first clinic that they set up was the, called the Hartford Maternal Health Center, set up on 100 Retreat Avenue, right across from Hartford Hospital. The projected clientele were low-income, married women. At the beginning was also you had to have had one child already, and they were, wanted to prescribe it for health reasons. They were trying to stay in the, within a legal framework. And I should say there were many Catholic patients. The uh, direct medical director of the clinic said that uh, later that about almost half of the patients were Catholic women.
1: It's interesting that you say that the availability of contraception, it was available to women who could afford it. And Mm -hmm. what the law was doing by the time you get to the 1930s and 40s and 50s is it's preventing low-income women from getting any kind of subsidies or any kind of assistance in procuring this thing that wealthier women can sim- with a sympathetic doctor can get.
0: Right, right. And, um, and, and in fact, the Planned Parenthood Clinic movement was in general nationally set up to, to provide for low-income women. The Connecticut Clinic, and I think the others were on a sliding scale, um, pay what you could or not at all. And they kept records of, of all of this. And um, so that was the whole clinic. Just as today, the clinics, the Planned Parenthood clinics, are are very often for people who cannot afford to pay otherwise.
1: Could you tell us about the specific circumstances that led to the Griswold case?
0: The clinics were successful in Connecticut. There were nine of them. And then one was established in Waterbury in 1939, connected with a hospital and as soon as the news was out in the newspaper, the Catholic clergy uh, passed a resolution declaring opposition and saying they would inform the prosecutors. This was read in every Catholic church the next day in Sunday. and Sunday. And then the uh, clinic was shut down, was raided the following week in uh, June of, of 1939 followed by uh, litigation and both the Connecticut the Connecticut Supreme Court would not said that there was the Connecticut state law did not allow for any medical uh, exception so that they would have to change it through legislation, which of course had failed. And so they were really stymied. They closed all the clinics. So from 1940 till uh, for the next 14 years or so, There was very little action from the Connecticut Birth Control League, except for, again, these biennial attempts to get new legislation. So the things began to change um, with the appointment of Estelle Griswold in 1954 as executive director of basically a moribund organization. She was, in many ways, an unlikely person. She had been born as a, a working class Catholic, wanted to become a singer. She she had worked in Europe in the post-war with displaced persons, and so she had a kind of a social work uh, mentality as well. She was described by a friend as a let's-do-it person for whom the birth control movement was akin to the abolition and suffrage movements, and she was determined to change. So when she became director um, within a year or so, she set up a referral service uh, to refer Connecticut patients to out-of-state clinics to give them access to birth control. The states being Rhode Island and particularly New York, she called these border runs. Basically, again, these were to provide low-income women uh, with birth control. What she found was that in Portchester, which is just over the border, Portchester, New York, 82% of the patients there were Connecticut women. And this was 1956. Uh, It amounted to over 1,500 women who were going using the Porchester Clinic for birth control. So the office, the Planned Parenthood group set up an office in Norwalk to refer patients there and and eventually to help transport them. They assisted the Porchester doctors in clinics with child care and and, and subsidize the Porchester uh, clinics. So her real purpose in this, aside from helping particular women, was to provide a test case. She felt they were aiding and abetting. Who were some of the other key
1: personalities involved in this story? Lee Buxton, a physician at
0: Yale, who was the head of OBGYN and head of a fertility clinic. who who was very uh, concerned about his inability to prescribe. Buxton was bringing cases on behalf of patients of his, that uh, one was a, a couple who had three medically compromised children, none of whom had lived beyond the age of 10 and they didn't want to try again. Another was a woman who had suffered a stroke during pregnancy, Another major player here was a woman named Catherine Rohrbach, who was an attorney. She was the chief Connecticut litigator because the the person that was initially involved and was always was involved was um, named Fowler Harper. And he was a professor at Yale Law School, but he didn't have a Connecticut license. So she, Catherine Rohrbach, handled the cases. She had been from the get go a pro-labor, progressive. She was a pacifist uh, in college and took on popular cases throughout her life. She defended the uh, people accused of communism under the Smith Act in the 1940s. And later in 1969, she defended the Black Black Panther leaders in a New Haven case. The Planned Parenthood work of this team uh, brought cases and eventually they reached the Supreme Court in 1961 Um, and then under the name of uh, Poe versus Ullman. And the case was dismissed by the Supreme Court because the claim was that uh, the law was not enforced. And this was Justice Frankfurter's uh, statement, which was widely quoted. This court cannot be umpire to debates concerning harmless, empty shadows. This of course was a perspective that ignored of the fact of the imposition on working class people and best expressed by Dr. Buxton, who said, it all adds up to the rich getting contraceptives and the poor getting children. So that was a decision that was made on June 19th, 1961, November 1st, Griswold and Buxton opened a clinic in New Haven, lasted for 10 days. And in this case, the protest came from a, a lone Catholic man who, who said that having a birth control clinic was quote, like a house of prostitution, district attorney. Uh, it was all kind of an act in a way, but he, that was a, front, a friendly bust it was called and they collected the diaphragms and condoms and so forth. Anyway, and, and Buxton and Griswold were fined. $100 apiece, there were witnesses, and eventually uh, it was then was the appeal that became the case Griswold versus Connecticut.
1: Clearly, there was one angry resident of New Haven that was unhappy about this clinic, but what what's our sense of what public perception and public um, approval of contraception was in Connecticut by the early 60s?
0: By the early 60s, 80% of Americans favored it. Including 78% of Catholics, according to a Gallup poll. And the other interesting thing is the Catholic Church as a body was not opposing it at this time. They were quiet, unlike in the 1940s. Things had changed enough. It was the 60s, and I guess you know the, the pill had been discovered in the 1960s. So behavioral norms had changed, and so people's views here. Uh, were quite different from what they had been in the 1870s or 1890s.
1: So tell us a little bit about the Griswold case itself.
0: I think the, the important thing here is that, you know, there were many arguments made, many amicus briefs filed by National Planned Parenthood. The American Civil Liberties Union was very involved in it as well. What the decision actually said was that the Connecticut ban on use of contraception was violated a constitutional right to marital privacy. And this was the first time such a right had been maintained. Um, So in other words, it overturned the Connecticut law. The major decision was written by Justice Douglas, who argued that marriage was a form of association that fell within a zone of privacy that was constitutionally Protected from government intrusion. And that right of privacy, they argued, and Douglas about that, Douglas said he described it as, quote, an association for as noble a purpose as any involved in our prior decisions. He further argued that specific guarantees in the Bill of Rights have penumbras formed by emanations from these guarantees. Now, that's all very vague. That was last phrase, penumbras and emanations. And critics were very quick to jump on it. They thought this was very vague. And not all the justices really agreed with that aspect of it. and they they quoted, they cited different uh, Bill of rights provisions for it, why they thought that there that this was illegal. but they did agree on the zone of privacy. and that that was a new concept, certainly, for us um, discussing anything to do with sexuality and marriage. So what about people who were not married? Well, a, a limitation of Griswold was that it established marital privacy and did not say anything about single people who for whom it was presumably still illegal to use contraception. So in 1972, the case of Eisenstadt versus Baird changed that. It was a Massachusetts case. William Baird was a former employee of a, I guess, a contraceptive salesman. And he gave a lecture about birth control and handed out a contraceptive foam to an unmarried woman. This was in Massachusetts, which all had a distribution law. Justice Brennan's argued for the court that the statute violated the rights of single persons under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. and. Uh, Here is his quote. Whatever the right of the individual to access contraception may be, the rights must be the same for the unmarried and married alike. So that basically made contraception legal for anybody.
1: What was the immediate effect of this for women in Connecticut?
0: Uh, The court case Griswold was handed out in June. And by September of 65, there was a birth control clinic in New Haven, a permanent one this time. By 58, there were six clinics in Connecticut and 12 out of the state's 13 hospitals provided birth control services. I should add that Yale, which first admitted women in 1969, established contraceptive services pretty early. So actually, it looked as if, from what I can tell, both Well, Yale, obviously, but also, I think, Planned Parenthood were were offering services to unmarried women, even before this other decision. Hey, Grading the Nutmeggers. We'll return to the episode in a moment, but I want to invite you to deepen your connection to Connecticut history with the CT Explored Inbox subscription. It's our brand new e-newsletter that sends you the latest stories, exhibitions,
1: and program announcements. Lots of great stuff to enhance your Grading the Nutmeg experience right to your email inbox. Comes out every other week, just enough, not too much. Check it out at ctexplored.substack.com. It's free. Celebrate the holiday season with the Connecticut River Museum. To the delight of kids of all ages, the Connecticut River Museum continues its winter railroad tradition with the 28th Annual Holiday Train Show, opening November 23rd and running through February 20th. Joyful faces watch in wonderment as model trains zip through tunnels, over bridges, and around familiar river valley landscapes. The C.T. River Museum, open year-round Tuesday through Sunday, offers both guided and self-guided tours and boat excursions. Go to ctrivermuseum.org for more information. I know that the Griswold case had some long-term effects on court decisions about privacy and sexuality. Can you tell us about a few of them?
0: Well, first, I mean, this is very important that the course Uh, It's the first time the court took a less restrictive approach to sexuality and regulation of reproduction. And I think the essential point here is that this Griswold decision separated sex from procreation, really, for the first time, uh, rejecting the standard of 19th century view of of sex. So it, it granted the right of people to limit the number of children or presumably not to have children at all. And I think that's very important. So I'd say two types of far reaching issues were dealt with here. One, it was a uh, basis for authorizing additional reproductive rights, which I'll say more about in a moment. But very surprising was that it became an underpinning for gay rights. Two cases were particularly important. One was Lawrence versus Texas 2003, which overturned anti-sodomy laws. And that reversed a decision that had been made in 1986. And the grounds for that were that sodomy laws violated fundamental rights of private sexual expression protected from government intrusion. The second case was the Obergefell versus Hodges in 2015, which overthrew state bans on same-sex marriage. And here is Kennedy again. The right to marry is fundamental because it supports a two-person union unlike any other in importance to the committed individuals. And notably, he included a lengthy quote from Douglas's opinion in Griswold, which was really a hymn to marriage and its high place in, in people's lives. So again, as with Griswold, by 2015, majority opinion, a favorite, same-sex marriage. The second major uh, impact was on reproductive rights, notably abortion. And here things are much less settled, as you know. The most famous case, of course, being Roe versus Wade uh, in January, 1973, which was a seven to two decision, which overturned a Texas law that made abortion a crime except to save the life of of a woman. Uh, Justice Blackmun cited Griswold in claiming that the right to privacy is broad enough to encompass a woman's decision whether or not to terminate her pregnancy. That decision was a matter between a woman and her physician. But he went on to say that the right of privacy was not absolute, and that in later stages of pregnancy, there were, quote, important state interests in regulation, specifically the protection of women's health and the potentiality of human life. And here, the notion of viability uh, being the cutoff point, it wasn't claimed so much in those terms at the time, but later became the uh, model here. But, But in sum, about Roe, it provided a medical model of abortion rights, protecting the physician's privacy especially. And it was consonant with contemporary efforts to reform the anti-abortion statutes in various states, these efforts were by physicians and clergy who were very alarmed by the high rates of death from illegal abortions. And, and they were working with notions of therapeutic abortions. And so some of the statutes were already changing. And uh, while Roe was became one of the court's most controversial uh, and polarizing decisions, but like Griswold, it accorded with public opinion at the time. Again, according to Gallup, uh, 64% of Americans, including 54% of Catholics, believed the decision to have an abortion should be between a woman and her doctor. One point to emphasize, and this is very startling to people today, is that it was the Republicans who were supporting the uh, Roe and, and abortion reform and the Democrats who were opposing it. And that flipped later as Nixon changed his position and it was a whole movement to realign political parties and and so forth.
1: Could there have been a different legal basis for the Griswold decision that could have set the trajectory for future rulings on reproductive rights in a different path?
0: Well, as you you probably know, uh, Justice Ginsburg, was very critical of the privacy approach to abortion and felt it was too vague. Essentially, she believed that gender equality should have been the central claim and that uh, the decision about abortion should be based on the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And this is her statement in 2007. The ability of women to realize their full potential, the court has recognized is intimately connected to their ability to control their reproductive lives. There she's quoting from an earlier decision. And this is her now. Thus legal challenges to undo restrictions on abortion procedures do not seek to vindicate some generalized notion of privacy. Rather, they center on a woman's autonomy to determine her life's course and thus to enjoy equal citizen stature. I think what's really interesting about uh, your question is that there was another model in 1972. And along the lines of, of, of Ginsburg's um, ideas here, this other model existed at the time Working was Roe was working its way through the course and it actually played out as political theater in Connecticut. Uh, there was a case of... And uh, 20, in, in 1970, uh, Connecticut women trying to get rid of the, the anti-abortion statute of 1860, which claimed the only uh, reason for an abortion was like the Texas statute in Roe versus Wade would be for to save the life of the woman. So here was this was the women's liberation movement was going full swing by 1970. And the women in Connecticut were claiming that control of re- production was a basic human and civil right, without which there is no freedom, no equality, no free human dignity. 1,700 Connecticut women signed on to a case that became known as Women versus Connecticut. Uh, They signed on as plaintiffs uh, seeking to uh, repeal that 1860 law. The case was argued by an all-female legal team, and this was part of the strategy, headed by none other than Catherine Rohrbach. So this was a very dramatic. People cited their experiences, uh, and a lot of them were on the courthouse stairs on these things. So it, it, I wasn't in Connecticut then, but it attracted a great deal of attention. So they made the case in part of, in the uh, deposition. The, the Connecticut's anti-abortion law violated the rights to privacy, to life, liberty of women of childbearing age and denied equal protection of the law to poor women. I should ask that to be a plaintiff, all you had to do was to not be pregnant and be of childbearing age. That was the qualification. So 1700s signed on. So I think then what, following this, this case was ultimately decided by a Circuit court, two district judges in Abelli versus Markle in 1972, I think, um, which declared the Connecticut anti abortion stature unconstitutional. They incorporated article uh, arguments based on sex discrimination as well as historical data about the different uh, situations of women in 1860 and 1970. And this de- their decision was reached four months before Roe was decided in, de- in September 72. So just imagine if that had been appealed or if Roe had not been uh, going through the courts, that court case might have come up, would have been appealed in Connecticut and it might have presented itself to the court on a completely
1: different grounds than the medical
0: model that, um,
1: that was eventually adopted. What became of Estelle Griswold after the court case was over? She retired right after this case. She was, uh, I forgot
0: when she was born, but she was in her 60s. I think she moved to Florida, but she was active in um, efforts to change the abortion laws. I don't know to what degree she was active. And, and I gather Buxton was too, although he died shortly after, who uh, died in 69. And I should make it clear that Planned Parenthood of the, the period I'm talking about, they were very careful to say this was not abortion, mm-hmm. to separate uh, birth control from abortion. But I'm wondering whether Griswold itself will last. You know, maybe this is way out, but it seemed to be settled law in 1980 when Robert Bork, who was Reagan's nominee for the Supreme Court, was rejected by a Senate vote of 58 to 42. He was an originalist. He was opposed to Roe, but he first uh, became notorious among civil libertarians and others with his opposition to Griswold, which he called, quote, an unprincipled usurpation of democratic authority unauthorized by the Constitution. Those are views that were considered out of the mainstream at the time, which was why he was rejected. So is it possible that uh, today something like this, might happen. Uh, Justice Thomas long ago declared there is no right to privacy, no constitutional right. Now, while Justice Roberts seems to have explicitly agreed with Griswold in his confirmation hearings, but more recent judges have declined to comment, notably Amy Comey Barrett last year. So I don't know to what degree privacy is affecting these policies, but it's just a thought. In fact, yesterday there was an article in the New York Times about Thomas's opposition and and so forth, and that with a heavy Republican majority, that it might be Thomas's court rather than Robert's court.
1: If you want to learn more, you can read Barbara Sicherman's article, Connecticut Women Fight for Reproductive Rights, in the fall 2017 issue of Connecticut Explored. Or see her pieces about Estelle Griswold and Catherine Rohrabach in the summer 2011 article, Women Who Changed the World. Both Griswold and Rohrabach have been inducted into the Connecticut Women's Hall of Fame.